0: In our world that is continuing to broaden its understanding of, of marriage and relationships, um, what have you learned in the last several years? Uh, what positive things have you learned that has enhanced the way that you minister to, to all different kinds of couples? This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF Podcast Listener Support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy fulton Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Gary Thomas. He is the best-selling author of several books, including The Sacred Search and Sacred Marriage. He has spoken internationally, though I'm going to guess not much in the last 15 months. Gary, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. Now first and foremost uh you're from the northwest originally is that correct?
1: I am. I grew up a Seattle boy.
0: Okay. So uh on the day we're recording this, Seattle's experiencing 117 <laughs> degree weather. What's the deal? Did did the northwest lose some sort of bet with someone? I don't know. And and they're freaking out. I mean, I've talked to friends and family members.
1: The tough thing is they, a lot of houses don't have air conditioning because you don't usually need it. But we do tell them, yeah, I'm in Houston now. The major difference is it will drop down to 70 at night. And I tell them, when, when you've been through a Houston summer where it hasn't been below 81 degrees for 60 days, and the humidity doesn't drop much below 70, and it's consistently in the 90s, then you can complain to us. But yeah, it's, it's certainly been a struggle for those in the Pacific Northwest. They're just, they're just not used to it and really not equipped as far as air conditioning.
0: One of my favorite Houston experiences, um, previous role, I served at CBF and I was helping people start churches around the country. I flew into Houston, I want to say it was like December or January. And it was like, you know, upper sixties, low seventies. And I came off the plane with a long sleeve shirt, shorts and sandals, (laughs) and everyone else was bundled. Like it was the dead of winter in Minnesota. And people were looking at me like I was crazy.
1: Um, I've taken picture of people in coats on days when it's 65 and uh, you know, they've, they've got those heavy coats and it's just, yeah, you do get conditioned to it. And what's funny is my wife and I do as well. We've been here 10 years now. And uh, boy, it gets below 60 and we start to feel like we're in freezing weather.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, while many continue to be affected by the coronavirus, uh, medically speaking, and of course, economically, most, most places around the US are, are re-entering into whatever this new normal is. And the, the pandemic has created a, a unique and challenging climate for everyone, especially married couples and, and families. As a person who's written extensively about marriage, and as a married person yourself, what, what was uh, the pandemic experience like for you?
1: Well, what changed most in my life was the shutdown of travel. I went longer without being on an airplane than I have in decades since, since I could remember, um, which which had some benefits. I was able to update and, and work on writing in ways I hadn't before. Um, the energy that lose from, from traveling, was able to be focused elsewhere. Um, but as I talked with other couples, and as Lisa and I looked at our own, I felt like what coronavirus did is give us a better view of where our relationships are at. If you're in a really strong, supportive marriage, I think the time quarantine demonstrated that, and you were able to enjoy it. If you were surviving because you weren't together and weren't having to interact, I think um, I, I think the the flimsiness of your relationship, if I could use that phrase, was shown and it was spotlighted and, and scared some people. So I, I really think it was a giant x-ray where we could kind of take a look and say, well, there are these fractures, maybe with our children, maybe with our spouse, maybe with our parents. and And in one sense, the gift of a more accurate view of where are we, which we need to know to either appreciate each other or grow toward each other or fix something that we're doing that's pushing us away from each other.
0: You've uh, re-released uh, some of your more popular books like The the Sacred Search, A Lifelong Love, uh, Nine Essential Conversations, before I say I do. I, I guess when I consider that these are updates and revised versions, I, I have to ask, what's changed for you since you uh, when you first wrote them,
1: well, for the the nine essential conversations for you say I do is my premarital guide. I wrote it with Dr. Steve and Rebecca Wilkie. Uh, he's been a marriage and family therapist for thirty five years, and we just had another six years or so of working with couples with it. And so we could just kind of tweak the questions and refine it. It wasn't a heavy update at all. it was just yeah, that question didn't usually go anywhere. This one was more helpful. This question was often misunderstood. So that one, because it's it's more of a question and answer thing than it is for a book. It's it's literally just to lead a couple through premarital counseling. Um, that one was more just tweaking. The Sacred Search, I was scared of changing too much because it's done so well. It, it's found its own path, but it's it's just every five years I hear from my publisher, we've got to shorten them up. We've got to keep things shorter. The internet has literally changed the way we read. Physiologically, it's changed our brains where we just can't have the long chapters that we had before. And I thought I was already writing shorter chapters. They've got to get shorter yet. So for that one, it was really just trying to tighten it up. And and I think also present a little bit more of a hopeful book. My my kids laughed when they went through the sacred search because it's, it's to help people make a wise marital choice. And they asked me, Dad, do you realize how many times you said this is a deal breaker in there? <laughs> they said, if two people read that book and took it literally, nobody might get married. And, and so I realized, you know, just because as a pastor, I see marriages that probably never should have happened and the consequences of somebody trying to make this work really not wanting anyone else to have to go through that, and, uh, but I've also got to remember the joy that marriage is, the delight of a good match, and also to realize God is going to be there. He's going to help us through, and in one sense, there isn't the perfect match. Uh, we're all going to have to make certain compromises, and so I was just able sort of to, to watch the tone. And, and with A Lifelong Love, it really was more just about shortening it and tightening it, uh, keeping the message crisp. I, I wouldn't recommend – my publisher will probably not appreci- appreciate me saying this, but I wouldn't recommend that if somebody had early editions of The Sacred Search or A Lifelong Love that they would want to buy a new one. I, I don't think you're getting more content. You're just getting more focus and, in fact, probably less content.
0: You know, we, we might have had to bleep somebody out because of a word they've said on here, but I don't think I've ever had to bleep somebody out for things that their publisher wouldn't want them to say. <laughs>
1: well, I, I I was thrilled with the chance to update it and and always refine a message. But I also thought I have this relationship with my readers. Yeah, I, I hear from them. I, I see them when I travel to conferences. And I and I just like to be honest. Um, And so I don't want anybody to be misled to think, oh, I got to get this new updated edition. I said, no. If you've read the old one, you're probably good.
0: You've been writing. But if you
1: haven't, Andy, let me throw that in for the case my publisher. But, for, but if you haven't, I think you're going to get the best form of it. How about that?
0: Absolutely. You, you, you <laughs> want them back there at the end. Um, you'd have been writing for over the span of, of four decades, and, and so much has changed in our world and our culture and the many expressions of the church. W- when you consider the central theme of your writing, uh, which tends to be relationships and marriage. What's changed for you along the way?
1: Yeah. Well, the the theme of my writing has always been closer to Christ, closer to others. I started out writing books on spiritual formation. And the idea was the closer we draw to God, the closer we're able to draw to others. And what we learn with others can also help us draw closer to God. And it's this increasing circle of of building each other up. I think where I'm at now even more is stressing the closer to Christ for this reason. We live in such a fractured world uh, that the church or I'm on the teaching team uh, is affiliated with the Southern Baptist. And look, everybody read about the fights that went on in the convention and that usually do. We've got the political fights. We've got the social fights. You've got the Twitter fights and the business fights and everything and, Andy, I have found so much refuge in glorying in who God is. I've, I've been doing a just about a year-long study, reading through the Bible slowly, annotating every description God gives of himself. I'm just writing it out. I'm now at like 60 pages of just self-descriptions, how God describes himself. And I can go through social media or watch a newscast, and it's so depressing. And then I can scroll through this list I have of how God describes himself, that he hears us, that he sees us, that he will rescue the downtrodden, that he's almighty. There are 75 instances in the book of Jeremiah where God is described as almighty. And we often feel like it's hopeless and everything's falling apart. You think, no, God is almighty. He's got this. Uh, from my devotional reading, I've been reading uh, a classic John Owens on, on the triune God. And again, just how each member of the Trinity, the father gives us our affirmation and our acceptance, and he's revealed as loving. Jesus is a perfect remedy for our sin, our, our savior. He fulfilled all that God needed him to fulfill. And he did it for us, not for himself. And then the Holy Spirit, that's our comforter, our counselor who empowers us, who encourages us, who convicts us, and just getting lost in the sense of the more I revel in who God is, the less I demand of my spouse, the more loving I am toward others, the more joyful I am, the more uh, the, the happier I am. And if I stop worshiping, I'm asking more of people. I'm more frustrated with the world. I'm more impatient with others. And so I think if anything's changed, it's just the need for worship. I've always enjoyed reading. I, I love to read. I'm always reading half a dozen books at a time, and a lot of people read a lot more than me. I shoot for about 50 books a year. Um, but I have also want to read books that are leading me to worship and to think about worship and to practice worship because I just think virtually every social problem could be solved by worship. If I worship the God who's a creator, I I can't have prejudice toward any race. God created the races. I I, I can't want to abuse anybody because I'm abusing somebody that's either God's daughter or son or somebody that God wants me to use me to to lead them to become God's daughter or son. Uh, I I certainly don't want to destroy someone because God was for me even when I was yet a sinner, so I know God is for them. Um, If I'm actively worshiping, there, there really isn't a sin I can fall into. So it impacts my relationships, it impacts my personal walk with God, and it just gives me higher joy and confidence and peace and security. I I know that may sound simplistic, but but I've been on this for months. It, It wasn't immediate, but it it really is having a major impact on my life and, and what I'm preaching. And my preaching, my main thing is to say, this is who Jesus is. This is what we know from being the God Father. This is the assurance we have because of God the Spirit. It's pointing more and more to God and less and less to techniques or what we need to do and all of that. That if we just would get lost in who God is, so much else of life would take care of itself.
0: Well, I think about. Back- you know my my own marriage i've uh, been married for for 13 years now and my perspective of what my marriage is and who i am to my spouse seems like it's a continual growth and development so I, you know i wonder for you you know as as you write about marriage you know let's say 20 years ago um, you know wh- yeah. what what have, what's, what what have you learned through your own experience that that's changed yeah. along the way that you would look back and maybe say something i wrote 20 years ago i don't know if i really stand by that anymore this is how i feel about this kind of thing now
1: that's a great question um i wrote sacred marriage about at the stage of marriage where you're at now and i don't know that i could write sacred marriage today now look i stand by sacred marriage i love sacred marriage i i i got a chance to update it half a dozen years ago and i i stand by it and think it's all true but Lisa and I had a difficult time. Our first year of marriage was was really difficult. And so the subtitle for listeners who don't know is, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And so it it really, in one sense, it's a spiritual formation book. How does God use the difficulties and challenges of marriage to help us become more like Christ? So it, it places the challenges of marriage in a spiritual context. And I, I can't tell you how many people have have come up to us literally and have said, we're married today because we read sacred marriage. What really moved me is when somebody shows me a baby, says we were broken up, we were broken apart. Um, we read this book, we got back together. We had this child and we call this our sacred marriage baby. I've had several people say that. And it's just, but it was, it was really trying to think through, okay, why is my marriage so difficult? Is there something wrong with my marriage? Did we marry the wrong people? All of those questions until I got onto the understanding that God is using my marriage to shape me, to perfect me. And that according to James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways, which means I stumble in many ways. I married a woman who stumbles in many ways. We have kids who stumble in many ways. And so, yeah, life isn't going to be easy But the best things in life usually aren't easy. Learning to play an instrument, starting a business, running a marathon, those are difficult things that we appreciate because they're difficult. And I said, Well, can I appreciate my marriage even though it's difficult? We tend to have this notion that if it's a good marriage, it's not a difficult marriage. And I I just don't think that's true to life. And then Years later, I wrote A Lifelong Love, and that's really about how you connect. That's really the true marriage book, the, the one we're talking about now that I got the update because it was written when our kids were you know, a little bit older and teenagers, and how do you reconnect, and life is so busy, and the natural part of life is to drift. And so what are the spiritual principles that help us grow closer? I didn't want to be one of those empty nesters that when the kids leave the house, we look at each other and say, who are you? Why am I still with you? What, what do we have holding us together now that we're not raising kids? And then my, my third major book on marriage was Cherish, which was written largely as an empty nester. And it was a book about the delight of being together. And, and well, I've had very young couples that have really appreciated Cherish because it lifts the bar from just trying to love your spouse to cherish your spouse. Instead of being in your marriage, just gritting your teeth and hanging in there, it's learning to cultivate the attitudes and actions and, and doing the things that help you cherish your spouse for who they are. Love focuses me on my obligations. Cherish focuses me on the excellence of my spouse um, and and creates a certain delight in the way I look at her and the way I talk about her and the way I think about her. I don't think I could have written that in the early sacred marriage years. I'm not sure I could have written it in the lifelong love years. I wish I would have had the book to read. I think it would have been very helpful in those years. I just don't know that I could have written it. And so I I look back and I just see these seasons of marriage where God has allowed me to to look at marriage through a different lens because I've been through a different stage of marriage. And now um, Lisa and I just have celebrated, I think it's our Thirty-sixth, maybe thirty-seventh anniversary is nineteen eighty-four. What does that make it? That must make it it'd thirty-seven. be, it'd be
0: thirty-seven. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, um, it, it it's been fun to look back and to stand by a book and say, I'm glad I wrote it when I did, because you just it's impossible not to look at marriage a little bit through the lens of how you're living it at the moment.
0: Are you interested in theological education, but not ready or able to commit to a fully Master of Divinity degree? BSK now offers two certificates that focus on general ministry training. The Exploring Ministry Certificates, levels one and two, will be available beginning this fall, including course options such as Introduction to Pastoral Care, the Black Church in America, and an Invitation to Christian Theology. These certificates provide options for your area of interest. BSK certificates only require students to take three courses, and certificates count towards the Master of Divinity. If you or someone you know is interested in learning more about these certificates, visit bsk.edu. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews of authors and practitioners for Conversations That Matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. You know, as much as things change, relationships are still as complex as they were when the first humans were walking the earth. And I think people have access to more relationship improvement resources than before. Uh, statistics show that the divorce rates in America alone have been declining over the last several decades. In fact, from 2009-2019, uh, the rate of divorce per 1,000 marriage fell from 9.7 to 7.6, and that's according to the U.S. Census Bureau. And yet, relationships still have problems. What, what tend to be the most common challenges within relationships that, that you address or that people yeah. come to you about?
1: Yeah. One of the ones I address in a lifelong love is boredom. Couples often are looking for some great reason why they don't want to be married anymore. And you do have some, certainly cases of abuse, you know, you don't have to ask that or blatant unfaithfulness. Yeah, of course. But so often, Andy, to be honest, couples have just admit, they've just gotten bored with each other. And they think that somehow that means the relationship has come to an end. Well, I'm, I'm not in love with you anymore. I still love you, but I'm not in love with you. And somehow that should bring the end of their marriage. I think that's a spiritual misunderstanding. Because what it tells me is that uh, nobody, and and I mean this, literally nobody is capable of enthralling us for 50 or 60 years. We're fallen people. And after you get to know your spouse and you know their stories, you know their history, you know their opinions, they can't keep enthralling you like they did when you were first infatuated. But God has created us, according to Jesus, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And so, what I found is it's not a problem of boredom, it's a problem of purpose. Where I've seen marriages get back together, where they renew each other, where they have a whole new dimension, is when a couple recognize, you know, we've been pretty self focused. We've been married because we make each other happy, we've been married because we want to have a good home and enjoy each other and raise our kids, but it's been self focused. We are not seeking first the kingdom of God we go to church, we'll we'll, we'll pray with our kids. That hasn't been our driving passion. And if it's not our driving passion, we should expect to become listless. We should expect to feel like there's got to be more to life than this because there is. We were all created to have divine impact that matters for eternity. And so when we're not doing that, it's God's kindness and mercy that says to us, you should be living for more. The tragedy is when we'd mistake that listlessness for a problem with our spouse instead of with our relationship. Well, if I'd married so-and-so, or if I was married to that person instead of you, then I would have the same exhilaration. Then I'd have the same excitement. So I, I, I tell couples, don't worry about falling out of love neurochemically. That's somewhat to be expected. Worry about falling out of purpose Now, the second thing, and I'm just kind of given the pillar of a lifelong love here, is is of of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he said, seek first the king of God. He also said, and his righteousness. It's not seeking his righteousness that destroys so many marriages. We don't understand how much our anger pushes a spouse away, how much arrogance frustrates and pushes a spouse away, how much negativity or Uh, materialism, or somebody that can never be satisfied. A critical nature can push someone away. And if we would seek first God's kingdom so that we have purpose and seek first his righteousness, we're going to become the kind of person that somebody wants to be married to, because we'll die to those things that pushes someone away. And righteousness isn't just about what we don't do. It's about what we become, compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, and love. So now we become the kind of person that somebody says, oh, I enjoy being around this person. They're compassionate. They're kind. They're patient. They're gentle. If we would just pursue Matthew 6, 33, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, our marriages would be so renewed. I call it the magnificent obsession. I steal that from a monk. It's not original to me. But when we become obsessed by that, I want to seek first that. That's what I think restores a marriage. So the two things, don't worry about falling out of love, worry about falling out of purpose. And then the second one, don't worry about falling out of love, worry about falling out of repentance. Because it's a lack of purpose and it's a lack of repentance that will ultimately doom most Christian marriages. If we rejoin around that, we rediscover a spiritual purpose. We repent and say, you know what, I I know I'm going on my way to heaven but that doesn't mean i should make my spouse's life feel like hell right and, and and so i need to practice holiness i need to become a person of compassion and gentleness and patience and and not make my spouse miserable by saying well because god's not going to condemn me for my sin my sin doesn't matter well it, it may not con- god may not condemn you but your sin makes your spouse feel condemned to a life of unhappiness and frustration so um uh, I, I think it's, it's rec- Getting our spiritual house in order is the foundational step to getting our marriage in order.
0: You've unwaveringly pointed people to, to God uh, at, at the center of their relationships, more importantly in the center of their individual lives, in, in both positive and in detrimental ways, our understanding of God is shaped by our experience, our education, upbringing, churches, and the lens by which that we look at scripture. And these influences affect the way we understand who God to be and what God desires for us. And you can imagine, and we've all experienced probably in our own lives, how that understanding of God can be skewed and shaped by our own agenda and desires. I mean, America is just full of the many ways by which we try to puppeteer or mascot God to our own political or denominational uh leanings um so how does one discover an authentic intimacy with god free free of the shackles of how we want god to be versus who god is and what god desires for us yeah well l- let me tell a story of
1: a woman who went through exactly what you just said She was, she was raised by a military dad. And look, this is not a slam on the military. I've worked with special ops soldiers from Fort Bragg. I've worked with a lot of military groups. I'm so grateful for our military just in this case, her dad ran his family like they were recruits, uh, like they were, they were privates. And so, um, I mean, literally with the quarter test on the bed an a minus was a failure to get an a, um, you you always had to be at at your best and so she grew up thinking that's how how God looked at me as well she got into college and she met a young man who was just the opposite of her dad he was happy go lucky he he was he adored her when she made a mistake he thought it was cute instead of despising her she said this is wild so she married him and then tried to turn him into her dad because <laughs> she realized wait a minute this guy doesn't have any ambition and she thought are you going to go back and go to more school? And he goes, why would I do that? He thought it was bizarre. And she says, well, you could become the boss. He says, I don't want to become the boss. Everybody hates the boss. I'd rather sit with people in the lunchroom and gossip about the boss. I mean, it was just, it it was who he was. So they had three kids. They raised two daughters, and she raised them like she was raised. And these daughters, one may become president of the United States. One will likely become president of Ford Motors or something. I mean, just high-powered, high-achieving, very capable individuals And then their son came along, and he had the same personality, the same looks, spitting image of his dad. And she was determined to turn him not into his dad, but be like one of her daughters. And a friend of hers who saw what was going on, godly woman, pulled her aside and said, "You know, I know you're having a lot of frustration with your son. But one thing I don't think you understand is how envious so many wives are of you. She said, what are you talking about? She goes, your husband is so into you. He adores you. He would do anything for you. She goes, we have the smallest house. We drive the oldest cars. We never go on vacation. Because goes, I know. You don't know how much some of us would give up our big houses for a husband with a heart as big as yours. And she goes, and I get what you're doing with your daughters. They're going to probably rule the world. I'm not sure the world is big enough for three kids like that. But she says, I tell you this, your son is just going to be just like your husband the world needs a lot more men like that as well. Can you just let them be like that? Well, she was upset. And then the friend said, which got her really upset. I don't even know if you've really understood the gospel. Well, growing up in a church, that made her angry. She says, what are you talking about? She goes, I know you know it in your head, but do you know it in your heart, what the gospel means that we're received through the work of Christ? Well, the way things operate, I I love how God does this. Following that conversation, he often follows it up she was going through this is around easter uh, a good friday through the footsteps with jesus and the last station at their church had this cross and it had the words of jesus according to john the last words of jesus it is finished and there was something about those three words that gripped her and she never thought it was finished with god she always thought, well, if I get an A minus, I got to get an A plus to try to get it up to an A. I've, I've got to do more. If I made the bed right today, I better make the bed right tomorrow. And, and this sense that God was telling her, it's finished. You, you don't have to earn my love. You don't have to prove yourself. Jesus did it all. And, and once she received that, she was weeping. She realized she had a good dad, but she never had that sense that it was ever finished with him. And then she felt convicted because she realized it was never finished with her daughters. They, she, she raised them like she was raised. You've, you've got to have one step better. It was never finished with her son. He never felt like he measured up with her. And she realized it was never finished with her husband. He never felt like he earned enough or he was good enough. And, and, and she was just broken. And it was her view of God that led her to raise her kids the way she did. That led her to relate to her husband the way he did. So he was doing something wonderful for over a weekend. He, I, I don't, he did something in the yard. He's working all weekend, and she shocked him when he came into the house, and she handed him a gift certificate for professional massage. She says, "You worked so hard all weekend, man. I want, I, I, I want you to have something to enjoy." And his mouth dropped open because she had always sort of passively aggressively judged him. Well, we don't make as much money as others, so there's no luxuries for you. We can't do this. We can't do that. And for him to receive something that was such a luxury that he knew was not easy for them to afford, but his wife saying, you deserve this. It was really the first time she ever told him, it's finished. I love you. You're enough. Who you are is okay with me. And it led Amanda into an entirely new dimension Of marriage, but she couldn't look at her husband differently until she realized that God looked at her differently than she realized. And that's why I say it's closer to Christ and then closer to others. A a faulty view of who God is tends to bleed out into our other relationships. So it's accurately worshiping God and knowing God and understanding God that sets us right in literally every area of our life, especially. In our marriage.
0: In the Christian world, we often throw around the term, the biblical model of marriage. And while on the surface, that sounds like a, a very holy idea, in reality, we have to do some digging into the examples of marriage within scripture and some of the religious laws that shaped marriage. And there are some not favorable models. I mean, you think about abraham auctioning sarah off yeah. to pharaoh yeah. david and but yeah. david and uh, mccall that's a that's a long drawn-out story that not a lot of people get oh, into yeah. um you, you've obviously spent your career calling people to invest in scriptures following the word and way of god um what would you say to them are some of the most challenging aspects of scripture when it comes to to marriage
1: well, for me, and this this will surprise some people because this isn't a verse that anybody fights about, but it was the biggest change in my marriage. It was First John 3.1. It says, Behold, how great a love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. I always claimed that as a single man. That's my identity. I'm God's son. But God used it to convict me when I wasn't being the best of husband. This is years and years ago, decades ago. Saying yeah, but it also means your wife is my daughter, and I expect you to treat her as such. And I, I, I would have known theologically that Lisa is God's daughter, but I, I, I didn't let it change my actions. And then when I had daughters of my own, and realized how much I love them, that if you want to get on my good side, it's easy—just be good to one of my kids. You know, be a friend, make them laugh. I'll love you. And if you want to get on my bad side, it's just as easy. Be a jerk to my kids. Shame my kids. Make them feel like they can't measure up. My blood pressure will go up if I even hear your name because I'd much rather you mess with me than one of my kids. And this notion that I'm to love my wife because she's God's daughter, realizing what I owe God, the fact that I'm alive is because of God's choice. The fact that he made me a human is because of God's choice. The fact that he's called me to be a Christian so I can be a relationship with him have the security of what Jesus has done for me, have the the presence, the comfort, the counsel of the Holy Spirit, the the acceptance and affirmation of the Father. And, And then after all that God has given me, he says, okay, Gary, here's my daughter, my daughter. Will you love her out of reverence for me? Andy, I'm married to a wonderful, godly, beautiful woman, but if she wasn't, If no other reason than out of love and reverence for God, to whom I owe so much, I'm going to take care of his daughter. Uh, And and what I loved about this image, and and it's sort of what ties a lifelong love together, that so much of how the world loves each other is based on things that fade. Our beauty fades, our strength fades, emotional infatuation fades. Um, All of the reasons that we, we think of that starts young love, time assaults. But if I love my wife primarily because she's God's daughter, she will be no less God's daughter if she's an 85-year-old arthritic Alzheimer's patient who doesn't even remember my name than she is now. And I want, I desperately want a lifelong love. I, I want it to be legendary, not in the sense that other people will talk about it, but just for me, that we got to do this. This was our life. And for me, it's that spiritual motivation. How can I love somebody who stumbles in many ways? How can she love me when I stumble in many ways, when we become less lovely and less strong and need more care and more help? Well, if it begins with worshiping, not only our heavenly father, this was the key, realizing that God became my heavenly father in law. That was a turning point for me. And so I want my marriage to point others to Jesus, that the role of my marriage should be, why do you love her so much? And and I would talk about other marriage, maybe she's not lovable or maybe he's not worthy. Well, but you know what my heavenly father is, and they really matter to my heavenly father. So I'm loving them out of reverence for him so that we could demonstrate to people that we don't, worship isn't just singing songs out of a hymnal. Worship is receiving love from our heavenly father, and passing that on to people who sometimes aren't lovable. And they see the supernatural power of Jesus at work. And so I'm most concerned about our marriages testifying to who God is. And I have I have a chapter about the glory of an incompatible marriage because so often we like to celebrate marriages that are so incompatible. But God said to Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. What if a couple was honest and said, you know what? We're not compatible at all. If it wasn't for the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we wouldn't even like each other. But God has given us the mercy and strength. So they're not testifying to their natural selves that we've made this marriage work or we just made a good choice. They're saying God has made a difference in our marriage, which also means he can make a difference in yours if we were far more concerned about pointing others to jesus through our marriage than having this mythical all-star marriage that we think we're supposed to have uh, i i think we would go a lot farther in our witness and our testimony and actually ourselves probably experience a higher level of happiness
0: you, you know i imagine one of the biggest challenges in writing to your audience is that not all men and women are alike and and there's an, an archetype. There's not an archetypical, you know, man or woman. Uh, We're all so different. And and I remember, you know, growing up in the evangelical world in the 1990s and two thousands, you know, the, the language was every man is a warrior deep inside and every woman is a princess, just, you know, awaiting to be saved. Going back to to scriptures, you know, there, there there's some, Toxic models of patriarchy and, and gender roles within the text, and uh, we see within the stories. You know, wh- what do we do with this? Um, yeah. h- how did these toxic examples inform gender and marriage roles for you today? Yeah, I think we've got to
1: understand, and we'll never get scripture if we don't understand there's only one hero in scripture, and that's God. I mean, every, and of course, I'm including Jesus in that. The Bible shows us the clay feet, the monstrosity. You mentioned it of Abraham. We could mention it of David, who, to be honest with Bathsheba, that could be characterized as as rape. Um, we don't know if she fought him off, but we do know a woman didn't have consent when it came to a king at that time. If he said, come here, she, she had to to come. And so he's beloved of God. He's such a key figure. And yet the way he treated women was just um, abominable. But I think we have to look at what Jesus calls us to and what Paul writes. Um, And and, and for me, again, really focusing on the New Testament and, and Paul, I'm just in awe of the writings of Paul. I think of Colossians 3. The reason I like Colossians, it was such a young Christian community there were no spiritual grandparents they'd only been Christians for months and so they didn't have these people who had been Christians for 20 years so Paul has to get very practical this is how Christians act this is how Christians behave and so he tells them to take off anger rage malice slander filthy language and lying i believe that's colossians 3:8 and then he tells them to put on i think this is colossians 3:12 compassion kindness gentleness patience and love and, and so I think what we're looking for are character qualities that will feed our relationships. If I'm acting out of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying, I'm living the dead man. Um, more than I'm concerned about roles here, I'm concerned about character and the way we treat each other. And am I acting then with kindness, courage, compassion, gentleness, patience, and love? And so I'm kind of seeking the the Colossians kind of marriage. Um, We are called to love each other heroically, and I think that's where the fights come. Husbands are called to love wives as Christ loved the church. Women are to take how to love a man so seriously that Paul says to Timothy, older women should train the younger women how to love their husbands, meaning They don't naturally know how to love a man well. They don't naturally know how to love a husband well. So the older women should take the younger women together and say, you know what? This is what it means to love a man. Now, that verse may be the most culturally offensive in our society today. Older women teaching younger women, this is how you make a man happy? What are you talking about? But you've also got Paul saying, hey, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her. So when I'm talking to husbands, I say, here's how you know if you're doing that. How is your marriage costing you something? If it's not costing you money, if it's not costing your vocation, if it's not costing your hobby, you're not loving your wife like Christ loves the church. Jesus gave up everything on the cross. Literally everything was taken away from him. What is being taken away from you in order to love your wife like Christ loved the church? The challenge, Andy, I think, is that we try to look at the roles distinct from each other. I think the Bible challenges the pride of men, and the Bible challenges the pride of women. And in our fights, we try to restore each one or pit the two against each other. And Paul says, no, it's not about men. It's not about women. It's about Christ. And as soon as we take off the focus of our life about seeking first the kingdom of God— and then we fight about, no, the kingdom of husbands or the kingdom of wives, you're going to get so far from the gospel because a gospel that's not Christ-centered isn't really the gospel.
0: As you think about, you know, your span of, of writing, um, who, have, who have been maybe uh, the audience that has surprised you the most? You know, the people that you didn't necessarily expect were picking up your books and reading them and giving you feedback from them.
1: Well, it's that's a fascinating question because I've spoken in virtually every denomination you could think of. Um, what surprised me the most is the international reach. Uh, it, it caught me by surprise. For whatever reason, I do really well in South Korea. I, I don't know why. Um, I've, I've done it in Germany. I've had a person bring me out and said, you know, in German churches, you're one of the main – people we read and and getting to go to Italy and 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 I had some Italian books come out and in a worship service where everybody's singing in Italian and they're having me there and I'm trans it, it's just um it it's overwhelming just a few months ago um well to to set it up my wife and I before we got married had really considered whether God would have us serve him in Indonesia. Uh we were in a great campus ministry and it was really kind of the situation where you should try to go somewhere Unless God stops you, and so for whatever reason we picked Indonesia, and it, it it never worked out. And just a couple months ago, I did a Zoom conference call with, with my book, When to Walk Away: Finding Freedom from Toxic People. They really were going through that in Indonesia, and so they had this Zoom call with all of these people, and my answers were translated. And I'm like, wow, I, I'm kind of reaching a little bit in in Indonesia, and so it, it's changed the way I write. In that when I'm trying to write, I'm not. I'm trying to make sure the books aren't too focused on American culture with American stories and American analogies, because I realize other people in the world are reading them. And, and then it's been fun, just when some translators call me. I, I had one story about a marriage. I thought this was really funny, where I used Gary Player, a famous golfer, who people knew his favorite golf club was the driver, which is unusual, because usually I get golfers into a lot of trouble. And a, a reporter who knew this was just kind of being fun with them because he, he also knew Gary Player really loved his wife. He says, well, if you had to choose between your driver and your wife, who would you choose? And Gary shook his head said, boy, I sure would miss her. Well, his wife was watching the interview on television. It was a live interview. So when he got back to the hotel room, there was his driver with his wife's negligee draped over it. <laughs> she said, have a good time tonight. Now, it, it was all in fun. They were just jesting. Well, I, I carried this story. And so it was an Asian country. I don't remember which one. The translator called me and said, Gary, I just don't understand this. Why was Gary Player's chauffeur wearing his wife's negligee? <laughs> I said, no, it's the driver, not a chauffeur. It's a golf club. But <laughs> you know, it, funny cultural things like that, where you've really got to be careful of puns uh, the way that they work. And so i've just been encouraged by the way that god is working worldwide I, I i never thought of being able to to get there um but god in his kindness and mercy apparently is has chosen to do
0: that in our world that is continuing to broaden its understanding of of marriage and relationships um What have you learned in the last several years? Uh, What positive things have you learned that has enhanced the way that you minister to to all different kinds of couples?
1: I I think that, and and this is a cliche. This is nothing new. If people are looking for, oh, I never thought about that. They're going to be so bored. But look, just remember that life is hard, and that people are hurting, and they're trying. And, and just to recognize that we're, we're to struggle with them. We we can't solve everything. We can't make everything easy in part because of the book I'm working on now, working with couples who are raising disabled children, Andy, that will be disabled for life for life, for the rest of their life, they're gonna be caring for severely disabled children. Some where the wife has had medical anomaly after medical anomaly, she's never really been healthy. Um, one, a wife married a man, he was a bodybuilder. He used to bench press 400 pounds. Uh, people aren't weightlifters. That's about 380 pounds more than I bench press. I mean, that's, uh, he, he was a big guy. Within two years of their marriage, He was diagnosed with MS. He lives in a scooter today. She's had to pack in the groceries for 90% of their marriage. Just compassion that when we make those wedding vows, we don't know what's ahead. And and frankly, that was the passion behind the sacred search, my book for helping people make a wise marital choice. You don't know what you're going to face, whether it's financial calamity, a health calamity, a parental calamity, a personal calamity. We, We don't know. But you get to choose the person that you face the calamity with. That's why I urge people toward character and faith as the driver for who they marry and what renews our marriage. This is a fallen world. And we're fallen people, and we need to have compassion for that and understanding for that. Um, But fortunately, we have a capable, loving, generous, kind, powerful God who will walk us through this fallen world um, and help us find faith uh, and victory as he defines victory, not always as we would define it.
0: If you want to stay connected with Gary, check out his work at GaryThomas.com. You can find his 20-plus books wherever books are sold. Gary, thank you for taking the time to have this conversation. We're grateful for your decades of dedication to invite people to follow Jesus.
1: Thank you, Andy.
0: This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu, to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out CBF.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.